we have to be the messengers, not just of change, but of hopeful change and persuade people that we, we can have a better environment. We can really reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we're using and we can make our lives better. Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Dylan Voorhees has been NRCM's Climate and Clean Energy Program Director for 14 years. This means he's quite literally been a voice on the front lines of the most important climate and clean energy conversations at the Statehouse. Dylan's moving on to a new and exciting professional opportunity as a senior consultant at VEIC. It's a nonprofit that works in New England and beyond to develop solutions in energy efficiency and sustainable transportation or renewable energy and carbon reductions. Dylan is one of the most respected clean energy experts and advocates in New England, so of course NRCM is sad to see him leave, but we're so grateful for all the work he's done in Augusta. We're excited for him and the great work he'll continue to do. In this episode of Frontline Voices, you'll hear from Dylan about the clean energy solutions he's been part of and the lessons he's learned from 14 years in climate advocacy at NRCM. Now, we're posting this episode during an unprecedented time, and NRCM hopes that you, your family, and your friends are safe and healthy. We really appreciate that you're listening to this episode today. With that, here's my conversation with Dylan. When someone has asked you, what do you do? How have you responded to them over the past 14 years? Sure. I'm an advocate, first of all. I'm trying to make something happen, and I'm advocating for a point of view and a set of outcomes, and those are informed by NRCM's mission and the values of our members. And I'm a, an advocate for a healthier climate and an advocate for cleaner energy and for transitioning our state and our society away from our very heavy dependence on fossil fuels. And so I do a lot of things in, in my job. It's, it's been a very diverse set of types of work. I develop policy ideas, you know, I work with others to think about, you know, what kinds of new laws and policies can the state have or programs that are going to achieve that. I lobby for them at the legislature. I've spent a lot of hours in front of the Energy and Utilities Committee of the legislature. And I also work with a lot of folks at state agencies to help a lot of important decisions get made, a lot of programs get developed at agencies like Efficiency Maine, although Efficiency Maine didn't exist really in the way it does now, 14 years ago. And I do a lot of work to educate and communicate and sort of build coalitions with other folks who share our interests. And that's a really exciting part of my work too, is to get to interact with a lot of different folks and build support because Maine people really want to see this change happen. And there's a lot of diverse folks that care about it. And so I get to interact with a lot of different people to build common ground. Well, thank you for that answer. And I would really love to hear more about some of the issues you've been a part of over the past 14 years. And I think solar would be a really interesting one to begin with. I know from the time that we overlapped at NRCM that the repeal of gross metering was a multi-year policy campaign that you were a part of. And I'm not sure if you want to talk a bit about that and what it means to have that repealed. Well, not only was Governor LePage and many of his appointees sort of opposed to policies that would encourage solar, they actually adopted policies that discouraged solar. 
And so that included a change in a policy that has existed for a long time called net metering, which allows people in their homes to basically get a credit on their bill for the solar that they produce in excess that goes to their neighbor and replaced it with something like called gross metering, which ended up taxing people effectively on that production. And it only lasted for a little while, but it really sent a chilling message into the industry that said, you're not welcome. And homeowners and businesses that want to install solar, like we're not encouraging you to invest your money in that. So repealing that took, as you said, several years. And there was really bipartisan support in the legislature to do that. But because Governor LePage had a veto pen, um, he could work with a small cohort of lawmakers to keep us from repealing that. So that was repealed um, very quickly after Governor Mills took office. But really, that was a down payment on much bigger sets of policies that we needed to actually encourage solar. And one of the things that's really important is that um, there's a lot of municipalities that want to invest in larger scale solar on a landfill or on a school and really reduce their energy costs. And our policies were so outdated, it was very difficult for schools and other institutions and kind of medium-sized businesses and larger businesses to do that. So the laws that got adopted last session really encouraged development of solar. And I think in particular, we're going to see a lot of that municipal solar and we're going to see a lot of community solar. You know, pretty significant sized projects that have enough power for hundreds of households to sign up to get a, a lower electric bill. So that's very exciting. And, you know, a few years ago, we had a few community solar projects that were really itty bitty little projects that were really, again, big barriers were in place. You could only build a community solar farm in Maine, you know, three years ago, you could only have nine people participate in that. So it was, it was really very, very difficult. Now we've lifted those barriers and we're going to see really within a couple of years, thousands of Mainers able to sign up for community solar, which is also very exciting. That is fantastic. And I guess in this vein, I'd be curious to know from your perspective as an energy policy expert beyond solar, what are some other exciting innovations that you've seen in the past 14 years in the renewable energy industry and how have those affected Maine? A chapter that's not yet written is about offshore wind in Maine. And 10 years ago, there was a lot of excitement building about offshore wind in Maine and other places, um, a feeling that, you know, in terms of a resource, there's a lot of windy ocean out there and a lot of expertise in Maine on marine issues and marine infrastructure and boat building and all of those things. Maine started to go down a, a path of really attracting international investment that wanted to build offshore wind here in Maine, and in particular, floating turbines. That was a new technology, and the University of Maine was sort of pioneering some new kinds of turbines, and they could be located further away into stronger winds. They maybe be located in more flexible locations. A giant Norwegian energy company was ready to sign a contract to start building it, and again, Governor LePage's sort of hostility to renewable energy through a long saga of events basically drove that company away and killed the project that they were um, preparing to build. 
And so offshore wind conversations went quiet in Maine for a long time. And in recent years, we've seen a lot of offshore wind actually being developed um, along our coast. That Norwegian company went to Scotland and they built a big floating offshore wind turbine in Scotland and I'm sure put a lot of people to work building clean energy out there. So I think it's too soon to say how we will be able to move forward with offshore wind. I think Governor Mills is very excited about it and there's a big potential here. Um, unfortunately, we had a, a long setback and I think that's just sort of part of the long-term story of leadership on climate and clean energy is, is the importance of leadership. And our technologies are changing rapidly. And if you're not ready to respond to those, you're going to get left behind. Are there conversations right now happening to support progress on this? There's a new joint task force between the federal government and three states, Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. That's just gotten started to have a conversation about where and how offshore wind can be sited. You, you may, may or may not know that three miles off our coast, we are in federal waters. So that means the federal government needs to be involved. And there's a task force to, to think about that. It will be a very slow moving task force because it involves the federal government and three state governments and lots of other folks. And meanwhile, hopefully we'll continue to see pretty significant amounts of solar and onshore wind developed in our state to move us forward to more renewable energy. So you just mentioned that conversations about offshore wind are happening with other states. And I know that during your time at NRCM, Maine has been involved in multi-state initiatives meant to address and lower greenhouse gas emissions. And one of them is REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Could you tell us a bit more about what REGI is and what effect has it had in Maine? Having Maine join and participate in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is certainly one of the high highlights of my time at NRCM. It was already beginning as a policy concept when I started in 2006. Uh, it was adopted by the Maine legislature in 2008. So we've now been part of it for 10 years. It's a program to put a strict limit on carbon pollution from power plants from Maine down to Maryland. Uh, although in recent recent years, both Virginia and Pennsylvania are have been considering joining and I think will join that. And it's been very successful. All of the power plants put together from Maine down to Maryland over the first 10 years of Reggie, those power plants reduced their carbon pollution by 50%, a really significant decrease from the power plant sector. Power plants used to be the biggest source of carbon emissions in our region and, and nationally. Both the production of renewable energy and Reggie, which is as limited carbon pollution from fossil fuel power plants has been very successful. It has created a lot of funding for Efficiency Maine. And so if you've put insulation into your house in the last several years and gotten help from Efficiency Maine, that was thanks to Reggie. So in 2006, coal and oil made up uh, more than 20% of where our electricity came from. And today, coal and oil make up less than 1% of where our electricity comes from. So we've had a huge change in taking off all of those really dirty power plants. We still have a lot of 
fossil fuels, natural gas that we need to reduce and replace with renewable energy. But um, it's been very successful for power plants and driving down pollution. So does Reggie work on a cap and trade model? And then where do some of the revenues go that Maine has gotten from it? Yeah, sure. So it is a cap and trade program or what some people like to call it a cap and invest program, because I think those are the two parts that are more important. The cap is a specific fixed limit on how much pollution all of those power plants can emit in a year. The trading comes in because individual power plants don't have a limit. It's a total limit. And so they can trade credits with each other and sell them and trade them and buy them. And for the most part, with carbon dioxide, we don't really care whether it comes out of one smokestack or another, but we do care about the total. The climate cares about the total. It's a specific cap, and every year it goes down. When it started in 2008, there was a cap level of, you know, 160 million metric tons or something like that, whatever the units were. And then each year it goes down. And that's how it drives down the, the pollution levels because there's a, you can't emit a, a ton of carbon unless you have a permit. And there's only a certain number of permits every year. The way the permits get given out is through an auction. So we don't give anything to power plants. This is the right to pollute our atmosphere. It is not free. And before Reggie, it was free to pollute the atmosphere with carbon as much as you wanted. So it's not free anymore. You have to pay for that. And that money goes into a fund every year. And right now, Maine gets about $10 million a year from auctioning those credits. And all of that money goes to Efficiency Maine. So Reggie has, a lot of economists have looked at Reggie and what they found out is our economy is actually stronger with Reggie than it would have been without Reggie. And the total amount we pay for energy is lower than if we didn't have Reggie. So we're having our cake and eating it too. This seems like a good time to talk a bit more about Efficiency Maine because you had mentioned earlier that it hasn't always existed. Well, Maine has had a pretty long history, certainly well before I started at NRCM, of putting up a value on energy efficiency. You know, wasting energy is its not a very thrifty New Englander kind of thing to do, right? So for a long time, policymakers and regulators in Maine and even way back utilities put a lot of effort into helping people be more energy efficient. But we didn't really have a very robust sort of independent entity that was doing all things energy efficiency back in 2006. There was a program that the Public Utilities Commission ran, um, which helped people with light bulbs and other things that that was a great program. But what happened in 2009 is the legislature created Efficiency Maine Trust as an independent sort of quasi-governmental entity. So it's not it's not like other state agencies that just do whatever the governor says. It has its own board and its own mission in law, but it's a public entity, certainly. And all of the funds come from public sources. And that's another one of the achievements that I'm very proud of is working to create the law that that created Efficiency Maine. Efficiency Maine helps consumers in Maine, whether they're large industrial paper mills or mom and pop grocery stores or a homeowner or a homeowner who is a low income homeowner who's on heating assistance. 
helps all of those people invest in energy efficient equipment and heating systems and to make the buildings the, themselves more energy efficient. And Efficiency Maine over the years has helped Mainers save well more than a billion dollars in energy costs. So it's a very substantial piece of our energy system. It sounds like Efficiency Maine has been very important to the work that you've done, but I understand that it's also connected with one of the weirdest bills that you've ever worked on. It's a funny story, and it gives you, I think, some insight into the real world of the legislative process and trying to make change happen in the face of folks who don't want change to happen. I wouldn't have a job if there weren't barriers to changes to happening to increase clean energy. There are folks that don't want that uh, for different reasons, whether it's their ideology or they like selling dirty stuff or that's just how they make money. There's opposition and that's what we're here for is to persuade and overcome that opposition to, to make our environment a better, better place. And as the example of energy efficiency gives, we're making people better economically too. We're helping people save money. But anyway, there's, we passed a law, I want to say it was in 2015, that substantially increased funding for Efficiency Maine. And it was a big omnibus energy bill. We negotiated it with a lot of other players and we made some compromises and we're really pretty pleased with the bill in the end because it would have led to a pretty significant increase in funding for Efficiency Maine. When the Efficiency Maine went to the Public Utilities Commission and sought their increased funding, the Public Utilities Commission, which at this time was dominated by LePage appointees, said, no, you can't have very much increase in funding because this sentence here puts a limit on how much funding you have. And we looked at that language and we said, well, that's kind of funny. There's, there's kind of an and missing, but it still reads, it should be read in this way to not have that limit. And they said, no, 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 that's, uh, we just have to read it the way it is. There's going to be a limit. And so we went back and we looked at the bill that had been passed and the word and had been dropped somewhere between when the committee voted on the language and when the final bill was printed to be sent to the House and Senate to be voted on. And that word, I won't get into the technical details, but that word was in a sentence that described a limit on how much funding Efficiency Maine could have. And the PUC, they used that. They really took advantage of it. They were oppositional. And so that was a, a huge setback. It took us at least another year to go back to the legislature to pass a bill that would literally, it was a one-word bill that would put the word and back in. And opponents used it as a opportunity to try and block funding for Efficiency Maine, even though it was clearly what the legislature had intended the year before. And so I gave a, another year at least of my life to a one-word piece of legislation. And eventually it did get passed, and, and Efficiency Maine is, has been helping people more ever since. I think I have a framed copy on my wall of the, of the AND bill. You know, it would be more funny and, and wasn't at the time if it, if it wasn't stopping millions of dollars of funding for energy efficiency that, that would have been benefiting consumers. It tells you a little bit about, about the legislature and what, it, what it's like 
and and the long-term struggle and and you don't ever get all the way at any time you're always back to try and build on the progress of the previous year i think it might be helpful to segue to transportation what are some possibilities moving forward transportation today makes up uh 54% of the carbon pollution in maine uh, the largest by a long shot and all of our buildings together our our homes our businesses all of our buildings together um emit about 30%. So it's it's a long ways uh out there as the biggest source of pollution. And most of that is us driving around our ordinary cars and trucks on the roads. And it has not gone down at all really in the 14 years that I've been at NRCM. And it's a tricky challenge and it's going to require a bunch of solutions that are the same solutions that you would have pointed to in 2006 like having better buses you know that can get around get people around where they need to be having some kinds of public transportation in more rural areas too so those solutions aren't necessarily any different one solution which did not exist in 2006 a little bit like solar is electric vehicles So electric vehicles are really a game changer technology. They are rapidly becoming cost effective or at a similar cost point to other new, new cars. They're not quite there, um but it's a lot like solar in that they're rapidly changing the the technology is getting cheaper and better fast. And the federal tax credits, I think for electric vehicles especially if they get extended are are going to have a similar effect as they had for solar is they're getting volume up and making it cheaper to make the cars and i actually happen to have just leased a new plug-in electric car that is both gas and plug-in um which is really fun this is a technology that is going to really make reducing carbon pollution much more achievable in a shorter term in a state like maine where for all of our other efforts to make our communities walkable and have buses we're still going to need a lot of cars and these are cars that can be powered by our electricity grid which is we talked about no longer uses coal and oil it uses much cleaner electricity and it's going up and up and up that renewable portfolio standard i mentioned is going to require 80% of the electricity sold in maine by 2030 to come from renewable energy So if we drive all our cars and trucks around with electricity it's a very significant way to reduce pollution. There's still lots of barriers, you know, for electric vehicles to get them adopted. We need charging stations, we need to make make them affordable for people, but that sort of technology is a game changer. I understand that there's another regional initiative. Could you tell us more about the Transportation Climate Initiative? How does TCI interact with some of the things that you've discussed that are um possible in Maine? The northeastern states um several years ago started discussions about how to build on the success of Reggie and bring that success into the transportation sector. So there's still again lots to achieve in terms of creating renewable energy and and cleaning up our power plants, but that's really now moving in very much in the right direction and at the same time transportation pollution not moving in the right direction and so the states started to have a conversation about how to do a similar kind of cap and invest program across the entire region to tackle transportation the states are in the kind of middle stages 
of developing a regional program that hopefully um, states across the region will all participate in, or many of them will participate in. And that will um, do a similar thing. It will put a cap on pollution from gasoline and diesel, on-road gasoline and diesel, and it will do that at the wholesale level. So not, not on individual cars or gas stations, but at the wholesale level where that gasoline or diesel is first brought into the region, which is a small number of companies, and would put a cap on emissions, require those polluters to pay, and use that money for investments in clean energy. Now, in transportation, clean energy means different things than weatherizing houses. It means investing in public transportation. It means investing in electric vehicle charging stations. It means creating incentives for housing to get located closer to where people work and shop, having walkable, bikeable communities where it's safe for people to be out of their cars and on their, on their feet, going to school or, or wherever they're going. So there's a lot of solutions that can reduce transportation pollution, and a lot of them take a lot of money. Maine today invests 85 cents per person per year in public transportation. If you go over to Vermont, it's like $12 per person per year in public transportation. So we're way underfunding transportation. And it's not just downtown buses in Portland. We have a system, and we could have more of a system, that really connects smaller towns with each other and gets people to their doctor's appointments or their their job in Somerset County too, uh, or Aristic County, actually doing a lot of great stuff up in Presque Isle with, with bus service. Um, people want better solutions. It's a little easy to get discouraged that our system the way it is today is just the way it has to be, but it's not the case. So um, the Transportation Climate Initiative, I think, is the next big thing for really big reductions in carbon pollution that create investments in a healthier, more sustainable, better quality of life for people living in Maine. Our friend Paula Page, uh, he's not left the room. His organization is mobilized to stop TCI from happening now. So these big policies that make a big difference are threats to those who favor the status quo, and they will be very aggressive to, to stop us from doing that. So this is a really good idea from an environmental and economic perspective, but it's going to take Maine people and lots of other people saying we want to do this. Um, otherwise, that, that opposition is going to keep us stuck with the status quo. So to follow that, I'm curious when you think about the work that you've been a part of in the past 14 years, are there any other policy issues that, in your mind, are examples of the fact that Maine can um, move beyond the status quo? What are some, some things that come to mind? I think the development of renewable energy in our state is a high point. And I think we made a fair amount of progress, most of it before um, Governor LePage really got entrenched in government, but we, we developed quite a lot of renewable energy uh, mostly onshore wind. Uh, I think we have the potential to do more. And we have a long history of hydropower and other renewable energy sources. So I think that's come more naturally to the state, which is a state where people are, are used to taking advantage of natural resources, hopefully in a sustainable way, whether it's logging or you know creating renewable energy. And it isn't always the case. 
but we don't have any fossil fuels in the state. We mine no coal, we frack no gas, thankfully, you know, we drill no oil, we don't have it. What we do have really abundant natural resources, wood and water and wind and sun that we can take advantage of. And we can do it, as I said, poorly, or we can do it in a very sustainable way. And so I think that makes sense to Maine people. And that's one of the reasons why producing renewable energy has been something where we've succeeded to the extent the policies let us. And I'm very optimistic we're going to we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming couple of years. One of the things that's very exciting too is the development of heat pumps and the use of heat pumps. So these are heating units that can be installed in your home. You can just leave your furnace in place, but you can add a heat pump into your wall and they're very efficient um, sources of heating. They use electricity to kind of do what is basically the reverse of an air conditioner. Um, they sort of move heat around in a way that the air conditioner does in reverse. They're not terribly expensive, I mean, compared to a, a furnace or a boiler. They're very energy efficient and they can really reduce heating oil costs. And Maine has been a tremendous leader on heat pumps. Efficiency Maine has helped Mainers install well over 40,000 heat pumps uh, in just the last several years. And then Governor Mills last year set a target of 100,000 heat pumps in five years. So Maine is leading on heat pumps nationally, like absolutely hands down where we're really leading. Efficiency Maine is leading that work. And this is a great technology that's helping people reduce their heating, heating oil use. And if we can achieve those targets, uh, we'll see a pretty big reduction in how much pollution our buildings are emitting. That is really impressive. I, I didn't know that Maine was the national leader on that? As you may know, we are, we're among the most oil-dependent states in the country. And that is true if you include transportation, where of course most of our transportation is oil-based, but also our heating. Um, so that makes us an, a bit of an outlier. And necessity is the mother of invention, not that we invented cold source heat pumps, but certainly the fact that heating oil is a dirty, expensive way to heat your home has made a heat pump a very attractive technology for Mainers. And so it makes sense that they've really embraced that technology. Our leaders in a bipartisan way have said, yeah, let's do a lot of that. That's really gonna be very helpful here where we're so oil dependent. This has been really fascinating. I, I really want in this conversation to ask you about lessons that you've learned from 14 years of working as a clean energy advocate. And you know what, what lessons will you carry with you as you move forward to your next work? Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is that people want these solutions. People want to address climate change and they want to use less fossil fuels. They want their air and water to be cleaner. Maine people, like a lot of people elsewhere, but I think it's really especially true of Maine people, they really value a clean environment and they value using our natural resources instead of, you know, dirty and polluting fossil fuels. So we're on the side of, you know, majority views and, and the values that Maine people have. And that's a good place to be because being on the other side of it makes for very difficult work. What that means is if people, people generally want it and they care about it, the question is, you know, what will it take to get there? And that's an educational 
and motivational job. And it sometimes can be easy to get discouraged and get cynical. And so even if you want something, you don't think it's possible, it's sometimes too easy to get cynical. And so we have to be the messengers, not just of change, but of hopeful change and persuade people that we, we can have a better environment. We can really reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we're using and we can make our lives better. And then of course it's persuading lawmakers of that, not just the public. I mean, can you share some almost like mental strategies that you've used on yourself when I'm sure there have been times, as you say, when it's easier to be cynical about possibilities for change? So from a personal level, I just don't get a lot of I just don't have a lot of interest in focusing on what can't be changed. And I, I'm really interested in what can we change. So that's what I focus on always is like, well, what can I do to make a difference? And what can we do as a state? And you know, what can lawmakers do differently? And there's a lot of things we can't control outside of our boundaries, you know, borders or you know, technology. We can't wish technology into existence. We can't wish that batteries were half the price, but there's a lot that we can do. And whatever we can do will make a difference. And so that's the other thing that is a sort of a mental strategy for me. And it's scientifically grounded. Um, so climate change is a pretty disturbing trend that we're on. And people in Maine already are experiencing climate change in negative ways. For some people, they just notice it. For other people, it's a big deal. They have Lyme disease now, or their livelihood is, is affected as a farmer, or their coastal property is eroding, right? So there's ways that some people are really getting negatively affected, and almost everybody's just noticing it. And it's going to get worse. I guarantee it. There's no all of the carbon dioxide we've been putting in the atmosphere is going to continue to warm the planet, and all of those changes are going to continue. But they're only going to continue to the magnitude that we decide on what we do in the next five or ten years. I think we got to focus on where we can make a difference because we can, and not get too focused on where we can't make a difference, and we can't turn back the clock. But we have an opportunity going forward to reduce our regrets as a society. And, and I have three kids and they're counting on me to do as much as I can going forward. Thank you so much to Dylan Voorhees for this conversation and, of course, for 14 years of excellent work at NRCM. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Frontline Voices on iTunes, Spotify or Google Play. Thanks for listening.